Have you ever had a really good teacher? Somebody said no. Okay, <laughs> that's cool. That's great. Uh, think about that for a second. Have you ever had a really good teacher? I can, I can remember maybe two teachers that I had all through my educational career. Maybe two. One, I'm a little iffy. I think I know their name, but I'm not, like, I'm not confident enough to be able to say it to their face, you know, that kind of thing. My wife is, is the complete opposite. She's like, oh, yeah, in first grade I had Mrs. Blah, 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 and in second grade I had Mrs. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I literally remember nothing about those grades at all, right? But have you ever had a good teacher? One of the ones I remember was actually uh, an Old Testament and preaching professor that I had um, in my undergraduate. His name was Dr. Ben Williams. And Dr. Williams was this, this short, bald guy who was like the manliest man I've ever met in my life. Like it was one of those guys where I thought I knew what like being a man was, and then I met him, and I was like, oh, that's what it is. And I'm not that, right? Like that kind of thing. But what made Dr. Williams a great teacher is he would come into the classroom. I remember the very first lecture I heard, he would come into the classroom, and the way that he presented the information was like, man, this guy comes knowing something. I think we've all probably had teachers before that was like, I don't really know that you know what you're teaching. Like, it seems like they asked you to teach math, and you were like, that sounds okay, right? But Dr. Williams, he came in and he, you just knew, like, he was so passionate about Old Testament and about preaching that everything that he taught, I was like, yes, I totally, I get that, I want to learn more from you. But the second thing that made Dr. Williams one of my favorite teachers is he was also wildly approachable. He was somebody that not only you could go into his office and, and chat about school, but he invited people just to come and talk about life about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, about the struggles of life, about the celebrations of life. He was one that he, was, he just craved to be able to talk with you to the point where even now he is literally the one and only one teacher that I've ever had that I still am in connection with. But what makes a great teacher? What makes a teacher one that you remember years after you leave their classroom? We've barely scratched the surface of the Gospel of Mark. We have a long way to go. But it's important that up to this point we realize something, that everything that we have talked about in Mark chapter 1 up until this point has been uh, what we would call preliminary stuff. It's all kind of setting the scene. It's, it's, it's identifying who Jesus is and, and what he has come to do. I mean, look at it, it's the, the ministry of John the Baptist. What was the purpose of John the Baptist? It was to prepare the way of the Lord. The baptism of Jesus, a, a hugely significant part in, these, in this opening chapter, introduces Jesus as the Lamb of God, gives him a firm identity in the Old Testament scriptures. This is the one that we've been waiting for. The temptation of Jesus that we looked at a couple of weeks ago doesn't just set up to, to prepare Jesus to face difficult trials and difficult tasks. It shows his position as Jesus is the one who came, who is the greater Adam, the one who could actually face temptation and succeed. And then last week, Brian talked about the calling of the first disciples, setting up some of these main characters who would eventually carry on the work of Jesus after his earthly ministry and, and continue passing on the messages and his teaching even to us today as we live and participate in this now, not yet, kingdom. 
Everything up to this point is setting the scene. But now we get into the actuality of Jesus' earthly ministry. We're beginning to dive into the things that he taught and the things that he did. So let's read our text this morning, Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 21. It says this, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue, and he was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you done with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. Reading uh, different commentators on this passage, I, I love how one put this significant transition. He, he says this, he says, The shift in scene is significant. It's a move from the seashore to the synagogue, from the fishermen to the scribes, from the margins of Jewish society to the center. Jesus is now getting in to the nitty-gritty of what he came to do. He is now at the heart of culture. We've talked multiple times in this series about disruption. Jesus is now really going to start disrupting the cultural norm of this day. But my question is this, and what I've been wrestling with in this passage is this, what if this type of disruption, what if this type of shift isn't something that we should just read about as what happened during Jesus' cultural day, but is actually that something the lives of every believer should face when encountered each and every time with the message of the gospel. That you and I should constantly be disrupted, should constantly be shifting as we're face to face with the truth of the words of God. Let me ask it another way this morning. How do you respond to the authority of Jesus as a teacher? How do you respond to the authority of Jesus as a teacher? There's four aspects of this text that I want to look at this morning, and so I want to dive right in. The first is this, the setting of Jesus' teaching. It's really important in this passage to talk about what's happening, where it's happening. And so Mark 1, 21 says this, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue, and he was teaching. So the first thing we learn about the setting is Jesus is in a town uh, called Capernaum. And, and Capernaum was a very vibrant town. Uh, it was a very prosperous town. It was a smaller town, but it was very vibrant, very prosperous town uh, in Palestine. And it was home to about 1,500 people which we would think isn't a ton, right? And, and a lot of those people were fishermen, and, and, and we've seen Jesus interact with fishermen. But what made Capernaum interesting is that it was a very significant place in the route from Damascus in the north to Egypt in the south. And that because of its location, 
many people would travel through Capernaum. People would come and go that there were a lot of newer people uh, that would pass through. Uh, the way that I think about it is, is I lived in Columbia for a while, and if you've ever experienced Columbia when college is in session versus when it's not in session, it's a huge difference, right? And I'm probably the opposite because I'm like, when it's not in session, I'm like, yeah, I could live here. And when it is in session, I'm like, no, I don't want to live here, right? Like maybe some of you are the opposite, but that's kind of what Capernaum is like, that there was always this, this kind of ebb and flow of people that would go through. And this is significant because I think this is why Jesus chooses to be here. Not just be here, Jesus is going to set up kind of his home base, his camp here for his ministry over the next three years. He's always going to return to Capernaum, not because he's like, oh, this is a cool place and it's very hip and there's a lot of things to do. No, he was there because this is where the people are. This is where I have the most uh, ears that will hear the message that I've come to bring. The next thing that we learn about this setting is it's on the Sabbath. And there's a lot we could say uh, about the Sabbath, but we have to realize that at this point, the law of Moses is still in effect, and so um, Jews would still observe the Sabbath. Jesus would still observe the Sabbath the way that it was meant to be observed. But basically what that means is that Jews would take the time, they would take this one day a week, and they would completely devote it to the reading, the studying, the memorizing, the discussing of the Old Testament scriptures. They would literally get together and they would just talk about, hey, what, what do we see in these words? How, how do they affect us? How should they transform us? And then the last thing that we learn, and, and maybe even the most important in this passage is that Jesus is in the synagogue. And the synagogue is, is an extremely important uh, place in Jewish culture. It, it was hugely, any, any town that was made up of a Jewish community had a local synagogue. And what it was meant to do is it was meant to kind of serve three common purposes. It was meant to be a house of prayer it was meant to be a house of assembly, and it was meant to be a house of study. And what I love about Jesus going into the synagogue on the Sabbath is it's hugely significant because he's going to the place where people go to commune with God, and God walks in the door. I mean, think about that for just a second. A significant staple in Jewish culture where every week these people would leave, they would literally not do any work, they would go to the synagogue, they would say, hey, let's, let's just let's look into the scriptures and see what God says and, and let's talk about it and discuss it. And then Jesus shows up and he's like, hey, here I am, guys. Like that's pretty amazing and it's pretty disruptive. Because friends, it's, it's easy for us to gather together and just talk about things of here, what we think they might mean, what we think they might look like, it's a whole nother thing to come face to face with the Lord Jesus himself and to be disrupted by the words that he says. And that's exactly what Jesus comes to do. And I think one of the amazing things about this 
that we learn about the work of Jesus is that he came to encounter people so that they would be disrupted, so that they would be changed, so that they would be hugely impacted by the words that he spoke, by the things that he did. But he also comes as kind of a different teacher. Which brings us to our second thing. Let's look at the manner of Jesus' teaching. So he teaches, and, and what frustrates me a little bit is it doesn't give me his lesson plan. You know, like, I'm like, Jesus, that could have been like a fire sermon that I, you know, that we could give. And he's just like, no, I'm just going to tell you that I was teaching. I'm like, oh, man, I wanted more. But what's impactful is it doesn't matter. Because look at what it says, verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching. I was thinking about this this week. When was the last time you were astonished? Astonished, that, that word, you know, can mean greatly impressed or amazed, just captivated by something. I had an opportunity this past week, uh, Brian Agavino, our lead pastor, Jonathan, our worship pastor, and I, we went to a conference in Denver, Colorado, and I was astonished. But I bet you'll never guess what astonished me. It wasn't the mountains. It wasn't Empower Field. It was the prairie dogs. <laughs> Listen, for those of you that have been in Denver and you've never told me that prairie dogs run wild there like squirrels, I'm a little upset at you, right? So we're there, and we're at a gas station. We're getting gas in, in the rental car, and, and I'm sitting in the car, and I look over, and I'm like, there's a prairie dog in the parking lot. I mean, I feel like your reaction should be a, a little more amazed <laughs> because the only time I ever see prairie dogs is at the zoo. Right? And so I'm like, oh, this one little prairie dog has like, lost his way. We've got like a homeward bound situation, and he's trying to find his way back. Right? <laughs> and then I start, I'm paying a little more attention, and I realize, oh, they're everywhere. And for like the next 20 minutes from our drive to the gas station to the airport, Brian and Jonathan are having a conversation. I'm like, guys, how are you not amazed at this prairie dog situation that is unfolding just outside of our window. I'm easily impressed. What can I say? But when was the last time that you were truly astonished, truly amazed, truly captivated? Maybe it was a vacation that you took. Maybe it was the birth of a child the success of a loved one, the completion of a goal. Maybe it was your wedding day where you're looking at your spouse-to-be and you're so captivated by them and the thought of building a life together. But here's my question. When was the last time you were astonished by the words of Jesus? And let me be clear, I don't say that to shame any of us. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is no shame or condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. 
But I say that because I feel like the reaction of this crowd, that they're astonished, they're amazed, they're captivated by the teaching of Jesus, should beg the question, why don't we oftentimes respond in the same way? When was the last time we responded in the same way? It should also make us ask a second question. What is so astonishing about Jesus' teaching? I mean, yes, the words that he spoke were extremely powerful and great, but because they're not included in here, I have to think that there's something else going on too. There's something else that is astonishing this crowd. And Mark tells us what it was in the second part of verse 22. It says, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. That what's happening is Jesus is teaching in a different manner than anybody they've ever heard before. I like how John kind of puts it in his gospel in, in chapter 7. He kind of unfolds this a little bit more from the Pharisees and the chief priests side of things that Jesus is kind of growing fame and people are talking about him, and so the Pharisees kind of send some chief priests to go and get him, to bring him to him so that they can talk to him. And the chief priests come back to the Pharisees and they don't have Jesus with them, and the Pharisees are like, where's Jesus? And they're like, we forgot him. Because, this is what they say, no one has taught us, nobody has spoken like this man. That they were so captivated by what Jesus was teaching and how he was teaching that they completely forgot what their mission was in the first place. That's how powerful Jesus taught. He taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And it's easy to look at this as kind of like a knock on the scribes. And in one sense, it may be. But I think it's, it's even a little different. I don't think this is really calling out the scribes just yet. Because the reality is the scribes didn't have the power to teach with the authority that Jesus brought. Because here's how the scribes would teach. They would come in and they, they would bring their authority by saying, here's all the people that taught me. I was taught by this rabbi who was taught by this rabbi who was taught by this rabbi. And all three of those rabbis are pretty good. So what I say is pretty good. And for some of them, yeah, they might have come as good teachers. For other of them, they probably came as like, look how great of people that I sat with. My wife uh, is a nurse. She, she works in endoscopy, which for those of you who don't know what that means, she does colonoscopies. And I know in like three seconds, I probably completely downgraded her profession in that moment. But that's the easiest way that I think of it. And it would be like you coming to me and saying, man, I really need a colonoscopy. And me be like, I could probably do it. Like, my wife does colonoscopies, and I've talked to her about it some, and so I think I can do it. <laughs> Never take me up on that offer. <laughs> but it's kind of like that. It's saying, hey, I've watched enough Steven Spielberg movies. I can probably be a good director. Hey, I own enough Rachel Ray cookbooks. I can probably be a good cook. And that's how some of these scribes would come and present. Hey, I sat under all of these people, so what I say has authority. What I say has power, but Jesus, he comes in. And what makes him great is that he doesn't need that authority. He doesn't come in and speak as one who sat under all these different teachers. He comes and speaks as God himself. 
And one of the common phrases that we're going to see in his ministry, Jesus says to people, he says, you've heard it said this, but now I tell you this. And he comes in his own name and in his own authority. And I don't want you to miss the manner of which Jesus is teaching because it's hugely important here that Jesus is continuing to establish who he is. And the manner of his teaching show that he doesn't speak as the scribes, but he speaks as God. He speaks as somebody who has a kind of power and authority that nobody on earth could ever have. And he's going to show and he's going to disrupt people in the way that what he teaches is that the things that God demands go beyond what the scribes even require. That God demands total disruption and life change. But it continues. And I love that, that Mark kind of puts these two things together. Some, uh, some interpretations tend to split these passages. But I think they're rightfully together because what's going to happen next is hugely important. That Jesus is going to demonstrate his power. His power through his authority says this in verse 23, immediately, so immediately after he was teaching, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Now this part's huge. Because what makes Jesus different is that the authority that he comes in isn't just of a knowledgeable person. He's not just coming as one who studied long enough and has the answers that people are looking for. He's not coming as someone who just sat under the best teachers. He's coming as someone who is also known by the spiritual realm. He's known by the demons. No scribe has ever been known like that. And what's captivating to me about this is that in a worldly sense, Jesus had no power at all. I mean, think about this with me for a second. He wasn't a worldly king. He wasn't a political leader. He wasn't somebody who had military power. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't somebody who had uh, been given the power by the Roman occupation. Like, he is a nobody. And he walks in to the synagogue on the Sabbath in Capernaum where the people are there to commune with God, and he shows that he has authority through the power of the Holy Spirit. That his authority isn't from what anybody else gave him, but it's from what we saw in his baptism just a few verses ago when the indwelling of the Spirit, when it descended on him like a dove. That is where Jesus gets his power. And what I love about his ministry is that he uses this authority not to obtain more power, but to serve. 
and to call people to repent and to believe because the kingdom of God has come. And let me just tell you, this whole passage should be extremely good news for us today. And I'll tell you why. When you take the authority of Jesus and you add the power of the Holy Spirit, what that signals for us is the presence of the Father. That as I said before, Jesus, he walks into this place where people want to be with God, where they talk about God things, where they talk about Scripture, and he comes with authority, and he comes with the power of the Spirit, and what people there should realize is God is among them. That just as they read about, just as they've talked about so many Sabbaths before, it's what Isaiah prophesied, Emmanuel, God with us. This is the moment. God with us. And there are some people in that room who are like, yes, this is what they've been waiting for. And there are some people in that room that's like, I don't know about this. But it's a power and authority that signals the presence of the Father. But that leaves us with one question, church. How will we respond? How will we respond? Let's look at the response of the people. We've already saw that they were astonished. They were amazed. But it goes even beyond that. Mark concludes this section in verse 28. He says, at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. If there's one thing that frustrates me about my own personal walk with Jesus, it's this, that if I'm truly amazed by Jesus' teaching and his authority and his mission, then why don't I cease to treat it just as part of what I experience during the week? And friends, I, I don't know about you, but my prayer lately has been Lord Jesus, let me be overcome. Let me be captivated by your word. Because my confession in that is most of the time, I'm not. Most of the time, I open Jesus' words and I read it and I think, oh, that's, that's good. That's a great thought. Right, that's nice. That's an, I'm going to go look for a book that will teach me more about that. But really what should happen is every time you open this and read it, it should just overcome you. And the reason why I'm not, the reason why my response oftentimes isn't the same response that we see here, the reason why so often I feel moved by a worship song during our gathering on Sunday morning, but by Tuesday afternoon I've completely lost it, is because I've made Jesus one of many authorities in my life. When what he asks, what he commands, is that he is the one final ultimate authority in my life. He came as a teacher 
with authority. He's taught as one having authority. He did signs, not for us to focus on the signs and be like, whoa, how cool was that? Yes, it was cool, but that wasn't the point. The point was to bring power to his teaching, to show that with Jesus' authority and the power of the Spirit, you're in the presence of the Father. It's this authority that later in the Great Commission, when Jesus says he has all authority in heaven and on earth, it's why he's able to command then his disciples to go forth and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to teach them the same things that Jesus taught. It's the same authority that he comes in saying, hey, one day I will return to judge the world. Acts chapter 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the whole book of Revelation, right? All hint to Jesus' coming in that same authority. to restore what was broken. But friends, so often, this is just one authority that we surrender to. And usually, it's like a second-class authority. Because what happens when you go to work and they're asking you to do something at work that goes against the authority of Scripture? We should say, no, this is my final authority. What happens when you look in the mirror and you're just overcome by feelings of depression and, and just, just self-evaluation that's negative and all of these things? I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. This should be our one authority. When your kids are going crazy and your marriage is out of control and you think, I just don't have a handle on life, friends, this is our final authority. This is what we surrender to. This is what we build our life on. This is what should astonish us each and every time. This past year, we've seen two incredible baptisms and, and have heard the witness of different people who have stood in the baptistry and they've said, man, I was just captivated by Jesus. I was just overcome by the Spirit. And they were disrupted to the point where they stood here in front of all of us and said, I surrender to one authority. But church, for those of us who have walked the spiritual life for a while, when was the last time that we felt like that? When was the last time we were captivated, moved to respond Use scripture to shut down the lies of the world, the lies of our inner self, the lies of the evil one. But church, take heart. Because what I love about the teachings of Jesus is he never comes saying, hey, do better. Be better. But he comes saying, no, look, I've shown you who I am. I've come to commune with you. I've come to die 
for you. I've come to give you the same power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that was at work in me during all of these miracles. Jesus says, I've come to give you that power so that you will know that you're in the presence of the Father. And so, friends, the response for us is to ask ourselves, do we believe it? Do we believe that Jesus not only is the final authority, but do we believe that he is the best authority for us to surrender to? And so I would encourage you, look at Jesus' teaching. Pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that it would captivate your life. That it would cause you to enter into hard conversations. That it would cause you to stop making excuses for yourself, but to really say, Lord, yes, I know I have fallen short, but I am so thankful for the cross. And then take comfort that we are in the presence of the Father. Let's pray.